Welcome to the first Peter Stone Brown Archives podcast. Um, I'm Trev Gibb. When thinking about what would be the first episode of this podcast, it became kind of obvious that really I should start with the interview that I conducted with him in around April 2018. It traces how he discovered Bob Dylan and the effect Bob Dylan had on his life and many of the thoughts and experiences he's had while seeing Bob Dylan live, listening to his music and thinking about it critically. This conversation with Peter basically helped me compile what would become The Joker and the Thief, the collection of Peter's writings on Bob Dylan. I hope you enjoy the conversation and look out for more podcasts over the next few weeks and months. They'll include other interviews that Peter has done with many of the blues, roots, country artists who he loved and seen in concert. Enjoy. So, how, how does chapter one start? Oh. I discovered Bob Dylan when I was 12. When I saw Pete Seeger sing Hard Green. And who filled Davy Moore in concert. At the beginning of the summer, I went away to camp. And I didn't really pay attention to who he said wrote the songs. If he said. And... He probably said it. And then uh, I went away to camp that summer and Blown in the Wind by Peter Paul and Mary was a huge hit. Huge hit. I played on AM radio all the time, but they never said who. You know, they just played the songs. And then I got home and my family had moved from a city to a small town in New Jersey. My brother came back from a different camp a camp where a lot of people were into folk music because it was a left-wing camp. He told me about this guy named Bob Dylan, who was following in the path of uh, Woody Guthrie. We had both grown up listening to folk music. Our parents didn't have many records. They had a couple of records. But I knew who Woody Guthrie was. I didn't have to find out who Woody Guthrie was through Bob Dylan and came from the other direction. He played Don't Think Twice. My brother played Don't Think Twice and when the guitar and over the summer he learned to play the harmonica mm-hmm. and he had a harmonica holder. Either that very night or the next night Dylan was on TV on the educational station, I think. But he was on this show about freedom songs and he sang uh, Only a Pawn in Their Game and Blowing in the Whip. And he looked, to me, just like what he got. Hey, bullet from the back of a bush took Medgar Evers' blood. His finger fired the trigger to his name. A handle hit out in the dark. A hand set the spark. Two eyes took the aim behind a man's brain. But he can't be blamed He's only a pawn in the game The South politician preaches to the poor white man You got more than the blacks don't complain And the Negro's name is you. 
politician's game as he rises to fame and the poor white remains on the caboose of the train so it ain't him to blame he's only listening to that and, and for songs like, like Masters of War but also songs like Corina Corina and, and even Bob Dylan's Blues I mean when, when he sang the Lung Ranger and Tano came riding down the line fixing everybody's troubles everybody set mine I thought it was pretty fucking funny that November we saw him at the Moss Theater in Newark, New Jersey it wasn't anywhere near sold out we had seats in the balcony and we in when the second half we moved up to like, I don't know, tenth row, eighth row or something. We were terrified because we were kids and we didn't do that at concerts. But nobody was sitting there and we didn't get bothered. I didn't, he sang some songs off of freewheeling and there had been an article on him in Newsweek magazine that had come out like the week before the show, maybe a couple of weeks before the show, and uh, it said he didn't write Blowing in the Wind, that a kid in a New Jersey town did Blowing in the Wind, had written Blowing in the, in the Wind. 
And you also had the Dylan's name wasn't really Dylan, but it was really Bob Zimmerman. And uh, at the show, Dylan, when he sang Blowing in the Wind, he goes, here's the song Newsweek said I didn't write. And he did uh, a lot of songs I didn't know at the show. Like, talk, uh, Talking John Birch, he usually did like a couple of Talking Blues at night. And uh, The Walls of Red Wing. And he may even have done Restless Farewell. Who Killed Davey Moore. And uh, Times They Are Changing. And Hollis Brown. And Hollis Brown was set to uh, the music of uh, this old ballad called Pretty Polly. And I knew that the first time I saw him sing it. Because I had a record of Pete Seeger singing Pretty Polly. But, yeah, that didn't bother me. I knew this how folk music worked. And then two months later, that January, I walked into a, a record store and was looking through the records, and there was the times they were changing. And I just went, boing! It was probably the, my first instant buy, if not the first album that I, I bought myself. And I took it home, and uh, it was on the turntable a lot for... The next six months. That song, The Times They Are Changing, I mean, when he had that verse about come mothers and fathers throughout the whole land and don't criticize what you can't understand. That was pretty much it. For me, you know, I was like, oh my God, this, guy, this guy's saying what I'm thinking. And, uh, but also, you know, songs like, well, the whole album. Songs like, uh, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll and with God on Our Side. And in fact, with God on Our Side was the encore at the concert in Newark. That really kicked it off for me. And then that summer, at the end of the summer, uh, Another Side of Bob Dylan came out. And there weren't any political songs, there weren't any freedom songs, there weren't any protest songs. And my brother and I had a subscription to sing out the folk song magazine and the editor of the magazine Erwin Silver had written a uh, open letter to Bob Dylan for the reason I wanted to write something is that, uh, that it's not just that he's a brilliant songwriter and he's a great great singer he's a great great singer and also in terms of songwriting, obviously he's written all kinds of songs. He's written songs that come from deep within, and he's also written songs that haven't come from deep within. But he does things... Well, I pity the poor immigrants, a good example. Because it, I didn't know what... Like, I had John Wesley Harding, and, and for 12 years, I was trying to figure out what that song was about, because... None of the interpretations that I read in any of the reviews of the album made any sense. Uh, Robert Shelton said it was about Vietnam. You know, somebody, uh, other people thought it was about immigrants coming to America. And uh, after Slytherin Coming came out, I decided, well, I might as well uh, check out the Bible. So I read the Bible, uh, treating it pretty much as a book. And lo and behold, in the Old Testament in Leviticus, 
during Exodus, there is a section called the blessings of obedience, of obedience, where Moses goes on the mountain and talks to God, and the Jews are in the desert, fleeing Egypt, but they're messing up, and God is talking to Moses, and God is saying, you know, they start acting right and believing with me and paying attention to me their heaven will be like iron their tears will be like rain and I just went boing <laughs> and yeah I just went like holy shit like what kind of person you know writes a song from that perspective where the eye the is God but if you go back and you read any of the interviews Dylan where Dylan talked about John Wesley Harding starting with the interview he gave to Sing Out magazine to uh, Happy Trauman in 1968 that you know he says he says I'm not in the songs I is the I is another
he has maintained that um, throughout in all the interviews. Like, more than 20 years later, when he did the Song Talk interview with uh, Paul Zolo, he said the same thing. You know, I'm not... So, he's remained consistent in that regard in the interviews where he's not putting people on. And that's one of the things that that shows his brilliance to me as a songwriter. And the other thing is his sense of humor. Now, when I first saw him in the 60s, especially at the Halloween show at Philmonic Hall, he was hysterical. I mean, he was really funny. As his writing progressed and he got into the symbolist poets like Rimbaud, and his songs got, in a sense, more and more kind of obscure. So you're going like, what? what is this about? What does this mean? People started taking him way too seriously. Not that he deserved to be taken seriously, but they elevated to such a thing. They missed like things were funny. Like Desolation Row is hysterical. And the first time he sang it, which I saw at Forest Hill Stadium in 1965, you know, when he goes, one hand is on the tightrope walker, the other is in his pants, the audience laughs hysterically. And he delivered it, you know, with comic timing. 20 years later, other people would come along, or people who weren't around at the time, or, you know, obviously, you know, at least a couple of thousand people were at Forest Hills, Everything became like this reverent thing. And a lot of the time, he's just kidding. You know, I mean, there's even lines in Brownsville's girl that are historical. You know, like, uh, the only thing we knew about Henry Porter is that his name wasn't Henry Porter. So I wanted to write something coming at it from that angle, but also coming from it from a strictly musical angle. If I had interviewed Dylan, what I wanted to do, unlike, say, uh, Michael Gilmore, was not necessarily talk about the lyrics, but talk about the music. Because what he slowly has done over the course of his career is explore just about every single form of American music there is. You know, he started with blues and old folk ballads, and, and blues has been the one constant throughout his career and you you know you could make a great argument that he's really a blues singer the only album that there isn't a strict blues on the one song has the word blues in it is times they are changing it's not really a blues song on that album but every other album has a song that's blues structure or blues patterns and blues and and then went back to rock and roll and like Elijah Wald in his book on Newport is the only writer Dylan wrote, the person who wrote about Dylan that I've read that approaches it he approaches Newport that Dylan played rock and roll in high school then went to folk and, and that is the correct way historically to approach it because he did play rock and roll in high school but he moved through country music and even though, you know, 
what a lot of people think are his country albums, I don't think are his country albums. Though he did a third of self-portrait, for instance, he was in Nashville with Nashville musicians cutting covers of classic country songs. And uh, so that's what I wanted to write about. And I also wanted to get into the never in tour of what I was actually, even though I've written like probably close to a hundred reviews of never ending tour shows, a good part of the never ending tour was Dylan learning how to lead a band for the first time. When he went on tour in 64 and 65, backed by Levon and at first Levon and the Hawks and then Levon left, but Anyway, the Hawks, who later became the band, they were musicians who pretty much knew how to do on stage anyway with the songs that they did. It didn't work out that way at first in the studio. Then when he finally returned to the road, they were with him again, and they did pretty much the same as a little different, but pretty much the same thing, the same approach. The next band... He had after that was kind of the opposite, which is uh, the Rolling Thunder Band, which was this ragtag ensemble of musicians from all over. I mean, you know, Mick Ronson, but they somehow made it work. You know, and the, and the sound, the sound of Rolling Thunder, you know, a lot of people talk about the Thin Wild Mercury sound. Well, the Thin Wild Mercury sound was on Blonde on Blonde. But the Rolling Thunder review wasn't the Thin Wild Mercury sound. And then he went on tour. And the next time he went on tour, it was with the Gospel Band. And they were all they were all pros. So they kind of knew what to do. So he didn't really have to actually lead the band because he had great musicians backing him and knew what to do. Yeah, and then, of course, he did that weird European tour in 84 with all European musicians. That wasn't, yeah, you can't say that was one of his great bands. Of course, he doesn't like to rehearse. I mean, he, he does rehearse, but, you know, he's just kind of like, well, however it gets played is how it happens. You know, and the next big tour after that was Petty, and that was like another established band that was already happening. So when he finally decided to drop the background singers and all that excess and go out with like a, a little four-piece band, at first with G. Smith, G. Smith was sort of probably like the leader, maybe. And, uh, or as they're called now, musical director. Not that... That's an official title. Is it? I think that's something that fans assign to it. And then when G left, that was when he really had to like take charge and lead things for the first time. Only problem was he decided he was like a lead guitar player, which he wasn't. So it took a really long time for that stuff to gel. To me, while... It yelled at certain points along the way. It was never as great as it could have been. I remember going to the show, and I think... 
It may have been after Larry Campbell joined, I forget. The Vans band made Dylan's band at the time look like amateur, so I have to look up what year that show was. 98? It might have been 98. But basically my point was that he had to learn how to lead a band. And I don't think he got there until... Well, there was a lot of stuff that was interesting. I don't think he fully got there until like 99 or loving to that. Well, everything that he was doing in 99 and 2000, it was all like leading up to Love and Set. But also, he, he went through periods, like he went through a big bluegrass period. Actually, a Stanley Brothers period, more than any other bluegrass person, uh, people. And other, uh, and Johnny and Jack, and people like that. And then he started moving towards Western Swing, though he never completely got there. He sort of went in the other direction. And all that eventually led to the Sinatra stuff. But it wasn't until ten years later. The albums after Love and Theft, he kind of stopped writing from deep within. And one of the ways I know that is that I... He, even the songs on Love and Theft, I didn't really want to sing them. Some were too hard to learn. I didn't, and if I did learn them, they didn't stay with me very long. You know, like, I learned Pain Blood and I did it, like, once. And, and just had no desire to, like, do it again. You know, because he started doing, like, Love and Theft stayed in my CD player for, like, six months, if not longer. And I considered it, in a lot of ways, in a sense, to be his most autobiographical record, like, just as lines with uh, in honest with me, like he never wanted to go back to his hometown, you know, and his parents, his voice is still oozing out of his ears. I felt that was like really him. Yeah, I felt that was like, you know, yeah, I knew a lot of people were like, oh, why is he doing honest with me again? And I think he was doing it because of those lines. But after that, it was kind of like there were times he was trying, but he wasn't really getting. Like, even working me in Blues number two, I mean, on one level, it's a beautiful song, but on another level, it doesn't quite get where he wants it to go. Maybe if I went back and, and listened to those records that they hit me in a different way, sometimes they have. Maybe, you know, one thing was he he was definitely concentrating on the music aspect of I'm getting the band to be what he wanted it to do. You know, of course, it was always different in concert. Yeah, and the bands changed. Like, for a long time, they were doing this, like, thing where he'd play, play a riff on piano and Donnie Harrow would be watching him intently and he would then echo that riff and sort of pass it on to the band and the band would riff on whatever the riff was for a while. But these days, Donnie Harrow's not watching him so intently anymore. And they're not doing that. It's taking, like... Sometimes known and more often obscure rock and roll riffs, whether it's from surfing music, the Beach Boys, or or some old rockabilly guy, and like putting his songs to that doesn't always work. Uh, I mean, it's fun in concert, but it doesn't it doesn't always musically work. Because in a lot of songs, eventually he'd return his original way of doing it. 
Sort of. Yeah, like it, it ain't me, baby, starting like a thousand or range. So I wanted to cover that aspect of things, so I didn't see anybody writing about that. You know, like I, I, I did, never really wanted it to be a biography. Where I don't know the money to go around the interview people. Most of them were dead anyway. And and that part of it, that part of it, just isn't that important to me. You know, these people make a big deal out of this high school and this high school auditorium and that stupid restaurant they had in Minnesota, Zimmy's, and like, I'm like, it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, I'd like to see his town, but I don't want to see his house painted with the blood and tracks cover on the garage, you know. I mean, give a fuck about this shit. Yeah, the last shows I saw, it was like, man, he wasn't singing that good ten years ago. I mean, I, you know, I think he put out too many albums of such or stuff. I mean, I, I, the only one that I'd have a desire to put on is the first one. Am I walking in my sleep?